All right, if you have your Bibles, uh, open up to the book of Matthew. We've got a lot to do. Uh, I have to confess, I may have sinned yesterday. I have set up in my house a fake Christmas tree. I told the world I would never do that. And then um, I did it. Um, Our neighbors actually gave us one, so I was like, well, I guess this is of the Lord. So um, forgive me, that's all I'll say. We're in Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to read the first 17 verses. We are in the um, a series that is uh, 85 sermons long, and we're on number two. So, hope you stick with us. It's going to be an awesome, awesome study. Matthew chapter 1. I'm going to pray before I read, because this is a passage that I think we're very apt to dismiss as something that's insignificant. And oh, have I got a surprise for you. So, uh, I'm going to pray, ask God to move me out of the way, and let His Spirit speak what He needs to speak. So that you bow with me. Father God, we come before you. You are King, you are Lord, but you're also Father who warmly embraces us, though we are broken and sinful. Thank you for sending your Son to die. Thank you for sending your Son that we might have a new life and not be defined by our old one. Father, I pray this morning for our church. I pray for our hearts that as we read your word, we are reminded, Father, that it is powerful, that it is the one thing you have given us that actually creates new life, new spiritual life. And so we pray today that you will do that by your word. Take these words, Father, and fill them with the power of your spirit. Convict those of us in need conviction. Comfort those of us in need comfort and draw all of our eyes towards you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nishan. And Nishan the father of Salmon, the Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam the father of Abijah. And Abijah the father of Asaph. And Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat the father of Joram. And Joram the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah the father of Jotham. And Jotham the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheotiel, and Sheotiel was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliad. And Eliad, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. This is God's word. 
Oh, you know I'm going to preach a genealogy. All Scripture, the Bible says, is God-breathed. And all Scripture is profitable. Theologian uh, Matthew Henry said, Where God has a mouth to speak and a hand to write, we should find an ear to hear and an eye to read, and God give us the heart to profit. It's not very difficult as we read Scripture to see how we might profit from God's very explicit commands, from His explicit promises, and even from His warnings. But if all Scripture was written for our edification and for our encouragement, God also intends for us to learn from such things as architectural building plans. Those are in the Bible. Geographical surveys, those are in the Bible. Even family lineages and genealogies. And we shouldn't have to do some kind of weird theological, hermeneutical yoga in order to figure that out. This is meaningful. Now, you may be familiar with your own genealogy, you may not be. You may be familiar with this passage, you may not be. Let me just share with you a little bit of information about genealogies. Now, genealogies uh, are very important to the people of Israel. Not so important to us today, but back then, very important. A family record determined much of the course of your life. Who they were, where they lived, even what they owned at time was legally defined by the tribe they were from, the clan they were from, and the family that they were from. The tribe that they came from, there were 12 tribes of Israel, and the tribe that they came from dictated where they actually lived, and for some it dictated what their job was. We just finished Malachi, and prior to, to Malachi, that whole time period was when they came back from the exile from Babylon, and they were rebuilding the temple and, and rebuilding or restarting worship. And so they actually, and you can read this in in Zechariah and Nehemiah, they had to check the genealogies to determine who was actually legally priests and who could do the job. So your tribe was really important. The clan you came from often dictated the property that you owned within the tribal land that you were living in. And it usually localized you around a particular hometown. And that's why they would say, or they would live in particular, or come from particular places because that's where their clan localized. And then the family that you came from, so you got tribes and then clans and then families, the family that you came from frequently dictated their station in life. Sometimes it kind of defined their reputation historically, even their spouses at times. And all this was based off family historical records of births and deaths and business transactions of which they had great record of. So if you were to survey the Old Testament, you'd find in the Old Testament there are over 50 genealogies. They come up very often for different reasons, but God is very much about genealogies and history and record and, and understanding where specifically Israel came from. And in the New Testament, we have it starting with a genealogy, and not just Jesus' genealogy, because in the chapter or the book of Luke, it doesn't start till chapter 3. 
What we see in the New Testament is actually the Roman governor using the genealogical records for census and for taxation. If you remember the Christmas story, it's why Joseph has to go down to Bethlehem to register. and There's records of all of that, and it was very helpful for Rome. So unlike uh, our family trees today, of which maybe you have one, maybe you don't, maybe you're familiar with it, we usually use those... Um, kind of informally, to discover maybe personal histories. Where did I come from? Well, that's interesting. I'm related to this person. Sometimes medical histories, like why am I suffering, or, or do I possibly have the, the proclivity towards a particular uh, disease, and just so you're aware and you can be prepared. But back then, they were used as official records. They were legal documents used to establish identity. So they're very important. They were especially important for a nation that was waiting for a king that was going to descend from a particular tribe in a particular family. So someone couldn't just step up and say, hey, I'm a son of the king, or I am the next in line, I am in the line of David, without real proof. You had to have royal blood, you couldn't just make that claim. And so this is where Matthew begins his gospel because his genealogy is primarily, or at least the first reason he's using it, is to make a case that Jesus is the promised king of the Jews. This guy that follows all the way back to David and the promise that was given to him. Now Matthew, though, is a teacher, as I said last week, and Matthew's genealogy isn't just to prove who Jesus is and to prove his royal identity. It's actually intended or designed to teach us something, and it's pretty amazing the way that Matthew has constructed this. As I said, there's another genealogy in Luke that you can compare. It's the same genealogy of Jesus as Matthew's is, but they are very different in their nature. Luke wrote, he was a doctor, okay? And Luke endeavored to do a complete investigation funded by some wealthy dude. And he was going out to investigate every detail, every fact, everything you could know about this man named Jesus. And was really not only declaring him to be God, but wanted to prove that he was actually a full man. And Matthew is, unlike Luke, not so interested in the details of the story. Luke wants every detail, every fact, every report, every eyewitness testimony. Matthew's a little more interested in the meaning of the story. And so we see that they have very different genealogies. Matthew, or say Luke, his genealogy starts with Jesus, and it descends to Adam. So it's very different than Matthew. Matthew, as we see, he starts with David and goes to Jesus. Okay? Very different purposes and different directions even. Now, as I said, Matthew's intending to show that Jesus is the king, so that's why he focuses on David so much. And Luke is intending primarily to, to show that he is the son of man. That's why you go back to Adam. Matthew, I should say Luke includes 77, I believe it is, names in his genealogy. 
that Matthew has almost half that, around 40, depending on how you count that. Matthew also deletes names that don't suit his purposes. He includes names that aren't found in Luke that do suit his purposes. And he even, though I won't go into it, changes names to suit his purposes. He'll take names and he'll combine in order to project and preach something in particular. And that's why, I should say, his secondary purpose for this genealogy is actually to preach the gospel. And I know you're thinking, no, come on. A genealogy, a list of names? Oh, yeah. It's awesome. Now, let me just give you some facts about the genealogy so you understand what's going on and you can start to see the intricacies of this genealogy. And then we're gonna, it's going to just get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and God's going to get bigger, and you'll be like, oh my gosh, it's amazing. It is, okay? Matthew divides his genealogy, as it says here, into three divisions of 14 generations, okay? Now, from our perspective, there's nothing significant about the number 14. But in Hebrew culture, they had numeric uh, values attached to, to the letters of each word. And so David... The name David is DVD. Not the movie, but DVD. Okay? No vowels. Okay? YHWH, Yahweh. There's no A's and E's in there. So DVD, well, the numeric value of DVD is 464, which is 14. Good math, right? So, again, Matthew, even how he's structured, is trying to put David, David, king, kingly line. That's very important. He also divides it into. Um, these divisions, somewhat arbitrarily, but very historically, of which Luke doesn't. Luke just starts laying out names. Matthew's like, okay, we got sections here. And he lays it out. The first was this thousand-year period, which we've preached about, we've talked about, from Abraham to David. And what you have is something that started in darkness. Abraham was a Babylonian, right? Genesis chapter 12 Genesis, prior to that, is the flood and Noah and all this stuff. So it's dark time. It's not some glorious God-glorifying time. And God enters into human existence and says, All right, Abraham, you're my man. I'm calling you. I want you to go to a land you've never seen and leave your family. It's like, okay. And so he goes. Starts in darkness, and it leads to David. And David is the light, right? You got David the king, a man after God's own heart, a glorious kingdom, Darkness to light. But then in the second section is 400 years from David to Babylonian exile, which goes light, glorious to darkness. Very dark time. The monarchy is destroyed. All of Israel is dispersed. And they're in exile. The temple has been destroyed. Worship has ceased. But then the last section that Matthew uses here is 600 years of time from that Babylonian exile to David, from that time of darkness back to the time of light. And you see Matthew just kind of organizing all these things, and I think unintentionally Matthew taught us a lot about himself from how he organized this genealogy. But with great intention, what I'm going to show you is that Matthew designed this genealogy to remind us of a couple things. One is God's original plan for the world. But also to reveal 
how scandalous of a plan that was. It is crazy. And then lastly, in this Advent season of hope, he intends for this genealogy to actually give us hope. You're not going to believe it's going to be amazing. There we go. Ready? All right. Check it out, all right? So our God is a creator. Our God is a architect. Our God is a builder, and he builds perfectly. And Matthew's genealogy is not just, as I said, names put on a list to show who Jesus is. It's very organized, it's very designed, it's very structured, and he chose, out of all people, Matthew, a tax collector. What is tax collectors like? Numbers, charts, graphs, design, right? He uses Matthew to construct this perfect genealogy. And not only did he want Matthew to write it so that it was easy to memorize for the church, that's one of the reasons. Every name that he selected or changed or left out was designed to preach a sermon. And I could preach five sermons on this genealogy. I won't, but I could. Okay. Well, if you take that first line, right? The first line has been inserted several ways. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, some Greek scholars have taken this just as a long title for the book. And this title has some very important phrases. First, the book of genealogy, right? The word for genealogy is the same word for Genesis. It means birth. It means beginning. So it's fair to translate this first phrase, the book of, can't be the old Genesis, has to be the new Genesis. It's the book of the new Genesis. Hold on to that one. So this gives us insight into how Matthew is viewing, because the birth of Christ is going to follow right after this, how he is viewing the birth of Christ, and it is the climax of all of history. It is the beginning, check this out, it is the beginning of the recreation of all that God wanted for the world but was lost when the first creation fell. So that's how we see the very first words. Now it keeps going though, and it says, Jesus Christ. Well, I hear that all the time. Did you know that's only used five times in the Gospels, that combination of words? Twice in Matthew, never in Luke. Not the Christ, not Jesus, but Jesus Christ. The name of Jesus, you may or may not know, is a Greek translation of the personal name Joshua. Hebrew Yeshua. And Joshua means what? God saves. Okay, so Jesus is a man in history with a personal history and a personal name. Jesus. But then, excuse me, then you have Christ which literally means anointed one. And the words Christ and Messiah are synonymous, right? It could be Jesus Messiah, Jesus Christ, it's saying the same thing. This is not a last name. This is not what you'd have in a mailbox, right? This is a royal title. So the man named Jesus is the promised, chosen, anointed Messiah. Okay, number two on the shelf. Three. Son of David, semicolon, son of Abraham. Now, these are the two big names in history. For Israel and for other religions, specifically Abraham. Okay? 
Islam, Judaism, Christianity. So these are the two big names representing two big covenants with two big promises, okay? So the promise to David was that he would have a son who would be king forever. It was a promise for the nation of Israel. And so when you say son of David, that is Israel, here's your Messiah. Okay? The promise to Abraham, which came prior to the promise to David, though they have them out of order, or intentionally out of order. The promise to Abraham was that he would have a son that would bless the nations of the world. And so, son of Abraham says, nations, here's your hope. So Israel, here's your Messiah. Nations, here is your hope. Bringing this all together. So, know that the creation of all people started with Adam and Eve. Okay, all humanity. From them came all these nations among the earth. Then God chose one nation through which he would raise up a savior to restore the entire world and bring them back into relationship with him. So taken all together, if you take all those pieces together, the first line could easily be translated, the book of the new Genesis of Jesus Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham, or, said differently and better, the new beginning of God, saving the world through Jesus, the promised Jewish king who will bless all the families of the earth. So that's how you start Matthew. The new beginning of God saving the world through Jesus, the promised Jewish king, yes, Judaism is important, who will bless all the families of the earth. So this isn't just about a Jewish king. This isn't just for the Jews. This is everything centers on this man, Jesus Christ. God's one plan has never changed. And it has never failed. And guess what? His one plan has never even been threatened. History begins and continues and will end exactly as God designed it to. God has always had one plan, beginning with one creation, creation, falling to its death with one decision, only to be redeemed through one people, climaxing in one person named Jesus, in order to begin again with one family who will live with him forever. That is how we approach Matthew. Now, what I love, though, as you get into it, so you see God is this designer, man. He is organizing and, and constructing everything to communicate this one message. But then, as you begin to go into it, I love Scripture is so honest. It is If you just read the Bible and you wonder if these disciples could be lying about some of the things, they certainly didn't do a very good job of putting themselves in the best light. Remember, these guys have stories about themselves. And if I'm writing a story about myself in, with some level of evil motivation, I'm going to write it much more glorious. As you read Matthew's genealogy, you find out it's a really dirty genealogy. This is genealogy of Jesus, right? If, if you and I were going to write our own family tree, 
I don't know about you, but there might be a few branches I just kind of leave out of the tree, right? We got these branches, like, I think Uncle Roscoe is not going to be mentioned in this tree, right? Whatever it is, there's going to be some people we just leave out because, like, you know what? They're not really important. They didn't have that much effect. And, man, they've got some scariness I don't want anyone to know about. So if Matthew wanted to protect the dignity of the king, the promised son of the king, the savior of, if you wanted to maybe fleshly protect some of this identity, he probably would have written a different kind of genealogy because this one only has broken people in it. And it's awesome. And this is because Jesus, I'm sorry, Matthew had another purpose beyond just revealing Jesus as the king. As I said, when compared to Luke's genealogy, there's a lot of names that are excluded. They're just left out. Countless kings are ignored. And and this kind of uh, deletion isn't totally unusual for a genealogy of ancient times. Typically, though, the, the purpose of a genealogy was to establish ancestry, not give an entire and complete family history. So the most shocking, though, a part about the genealogy is not who he leaves out, but who he puts in. And like I said, I could preach all kinds of sermons about this ancestral line of Jesus, which includes, among other things, Babylonian polygamists, liars, thieves, a prideful warrior turned leper, several adulterers, a few murderers, a man who sold his own brother into slavery, a cursed king, and countless idolaters. This is Jesus' line. Jesus' family. So, Jesus' royal lineage doesn't start as clean as some people might think. There are questions of whether it's not it's even actually legal. Check this out. So one of the kings included, it's near, I think, verse 11 and 12, a guy named Jeconiah. Now, I'm sure you've heard of him, and you talk about him often in your home. But Jeconiah was a king who was actually cursed by God. The curse is recorded in Jeremiah 22. You probably have a footnote of some kind in your Bible. And if you read that curse, what it says, part of it is this. None of his offspring, this is the prophet speaking for God, cursing this king who is in the Davidic line, none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. Uh Uh-oh. How does that work with Jesus? So Jeconiah is Joseph's ancestor, so there's a problem if Jesus is the son of Joseph. Though the genealogy runs from Abraham to Joseph, we do see at the very end it mentions Joseph, the husband of Mary. It kind of inserts that. In Luke's genealogy, it says about Joseph, in the same genealogy, being the son, and it has a little parenthetical, as was supposed, of Joseph. Right? There's a distance. I mean, he's... He's the adopted son, but he's not really the son of Joseph, and they want to make that clear. Part of it might be because of this. See, if Jesus had been the real son of Joseph, he never could have sat on the throne of David. Why? Because it was cursed line. But if he's not the son of of Joseph, he can't legally be king. So check this out. This is awesome. God's wisdom 
Nathan was also one of David's sons, and he was the ancestor of Mary. Jesus was also royal through Mary's line. So MacArthur made a great point, and I give him credit for it because he's a smart man and way older and better preacher than I am. And he said this, Jesus had to be the legal son of Joseph in order to have the right. So God had to devise a plan whereby he could be the legal heir to the throne through the father, but not in the bloodline descending from Jeconiah. Catch that? Jesus had to be the legal son of Joseph in order to have the right. So God had to devise a plan whereby he could be the legal heir to the throne through the father, but not in the bloodline descending from Jeconiah came through Mary. Holy smokes, God knows what he's doing. Right? And Matthew puts that in there to say, look, this is all designed. God knows what he's doing from beginning to end. The sin of men can't thwart or even threaten God's plan. But it gets better. So Matthew wanted his genealogy, as I said, because that just kind of continues to beat the point of like, okay, so he can really be king, really can be king. Well, he wanted to do more than prove Jesus was legally king, which he's done very well. He wanted to preach just what kind of king Jesus was. He is a king who rules with grace. How does he do this? Well, Matthew includes something that Luke does not, and that I'm not sure how many, if any, Old Testament genealogies include women. There's four women he includes, five if you include Mary, but there's four women that are included in this genealogy. You'll see them because they will say like Zerah by Tamar and Boaz by Rahab. So they add four women in between throughout the genealogy. Now, usually genealogies went through the father. Okay, It was always father, father, son, son, begat him, begat him. It was always fathers. And the names of women, even just Middle Eastern genealogies, were only mentioned if they would in some way maintain the purity of the line, like there was some kind of weird marriage, and so you had to make sure, or it would enhance the dignity of the genealogy. These do none of that. Consider the women that Matthew could have named, right? He could have named a woman like Sarah. He could have named Rebecca. He could have named Rachel or any number of wives of the men in here who might have been more dignified. But he mentions four women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and the wife of Uriah, whose name he doesn't even feel right to say, Bathsheba. I can't go through all the stories but I'll reference them for you. Tamar, she was a young widow who uh, played the harlot in order to trick her father-in-law, Judah, into keeping his promise of another child. That's in Genesis 38. So she dressed up as a prostitute. From which came Jesus' line. Rahab, you may be familiar with, she was a prostitute who worked in the city of Jericho, best known for assisting the Israelite spies by hiding them. You read that in the first couple chapters of Joshua. Ruth, we preached through Ruth. She was a widow, great gal, right? Morally upright, least questionable of the four, but she was a Moabite. And a Moabite were the descendants of Lot, 
The Moabites came from the incestuous relationship Lot had with his two daughters. And then lastly, you have Bathsheba, whom, as I said, Matthew can't even name directly. She was the widow of Uriah, one of David's great warriors. And David seduced her, and she became his wife, but illegally, but not after or before he murdered her husband and many other Israelites to cover up his sin. So what you have here in this line, Tamar, who pretended to be a prostitute, Rahab, who worked as a prostitute, Ruth, who was the result of ancestral prostitution, and Bathsheba, who acted like a prostitute, and they all become great-grandmothers of Jesus. Wow. All four were not Jewish. It means they were foreigners outside the covenant. All four were stained with sin, but all four, by nature of their inclusion, are part of preaching the gospel of grace. God certainly could have ran his plan through what might have appeared as cleaner people, but then who would we be talking about? We'd be talking about how gloriously pure his line was, how wonderful the people are in his line is, instead of talking about how gloriously gracious and amazing our God and Savior is. Matthew reminds us quite simply that God came to save sinners, to take that which is broken, that which is ugly, that which is sinful, and through, not despite them, magnify his mercy, his grace, and his love. Through it, not around it. That is the gracious and powerful king that we serve. Now, I think the most important part is what I'm going to talk about now. As you take all those pieces, you see God is this amazing designer. He's behind all things constructing it. You see in the midst of this genealogy he's designed, it is ugly and broken and full of sin. You're like, how can anything glorious come out of that? Oh, wait, it ends with Jesus. And so you ask yourself, what... And I did. What does a 2,000-year-old genealogy that represents basically 4,000-plus years of history have to do with me in 2013? Everything. Everything. Let me prove it to you. It's good stuff. We are not only putting our faith in the true identity of Christ, as Matthew clearly proves. We are putting faith in our new identity remind you what 2 Corinthians 5 says. From now on, now from now on in this verse is not that you believed. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, When we place, when you place your trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, you receive a brand new identity. Not a new and improved you, a completely different you. A new life, a new identity. We are 
redeemed. The old is gone, the new has come, but guess what? Our past is redeemed with us. We begin to see that past very differently. Because you know who Jesus is, if you didn't see the cross or didn't know about the cross and you laid out this genealogy that was of this guy named Jesus, you would look at that and go, what a screw-up family. This guy doesn't have a chance. But because you know who Jesus is, you know what he did through the power of the resurrection, you know and see things completely different. And you perceive all of that brokenness, all of that ugliness, all of that sin, not as meaningless, but gloriously meaningful. What do I mean? Well, first is this. For those who are in Christ, for those who are a new creation, for those who have put their faith that Jesus Christ died in your place for your sins, and that your trust in what he has done is what saves you, you have a redeemed family history. What does that mean? It means Jesus' genealogy teaches us very clearly that the brokenness of our own family histories, of our own personal stories, whatever you have done, they cannot and they did not and they will not disrupt God's plan. On the contrary, it magnifies His glory. The sin that we have committed or the sin that has been committed against us It does not surprise God. He may not desire it in that I think it grieves Him, but without doubt, He has ordained it. It's not out of His control. Ever. He does not work despite it. He works through it to accomplish whatever His gloriously beautiful kingdom purposes are. And all of this serves to do one thing, to make the sermon of our lives more glorious. We don't hide our brokenness. We don't hide our weakness. We don't look back in shame and go, I don't want anyone to know what happened. No, we declare it. Why? Because our weakness makes God's strength that much more. It makes that God's glory that much more. We also, though, something I thought about a lot this week, For those who are in Christ, we have a family history that's redeemed. But we also have a spiritual history. And what I mean by that, it's very natural for us to look back at our worldly influences, our just our lives of what happened with people and interactions and experiences, and to see that, well, this I can see how this was bad and this affected me negatively, or this was positive and this was good. Like you you see that. I grew up in a great family, I grew up in a crappy family, I was abused. I slept around. Whatever. You can see, those are obvious things. It's easy for us to go, yes, Lord, thank you that my guilt is removed, my shame is removed. Awesome. But then there's these spiritual genealogies we have. Consider all of the spiritual influences in your lives. Most of you, this is not your first church. Right? You've been through or under, I should say, other spiritual leadership. When you first became a Christian, if you are a Christian, and you had different influences, good and bad. Pastors, good and bad. Some may have proven to be false teachers. Some did not. Parents, good and bad. Different leaders who have had an influence on your life and impacted you spiritually. They've taught you things about God, right or wrong. 
that you gleaned from, you learned from, and suffered from in some, t- some ways. And all I want to, I guess, encourage us to do is don't be quick to dismiss them. Don't be quick to dismiss the time you had under their leadership, in their ministries, or, or interacting with them as meaningless. It is part of God's design, your design, spiritual genealogy. Remember that Jesus was not a fifth-generation pastor, right? It wasn't like Jesus showed up like, well, my dad before me was a pastor, and my dad before me was a pastor, and my dad before me was a pastor. Like, well, I'm sure you should be a pastor then, right? Jesus' line was full of evil men. And many of those men claimed to be teachers of God. And many of the men taught idolatry. And yet, God didn't go, oh, I'll just kind of, through them, he brought his plan to completion. He used them. I'm not saying go and find an idolater or a false teacher that you can follow. But it is to say that don't for a second think that that was an accident. Don't think that those influence like, I learned nothing from them. Well, maybe you learned or pushed you to the actual truth. God uses that and used it in Jesus' line to bring his plan to completion. And I'm tempted at times, honestly, to be a very fearful of association for teachers that I suddenly um, disre- or I, I don't respect anymore, that start doing things or teaching things that I don't like, and I want to go, well, they're doing that now, and that experience I had back then, I'm going to include that all together, and it's just horrible. Teachers of yesterday influenced me a lot. And I want to be careful how we view them because God redeems even spiritual history to his glory. But I want to bring that all together as I close and remember that all this is possible to be able to look at your family histories, your earthly physical genealogy, look back and go, man, that's messed up. How did I ever get here? Or the spiritual genealogies, how did I figure this out and recognize this, that All of it is possible in terms of looking at this differently because we have a completely redeemed identity in Christ. See, as people, we are so tempted to look backward for identity. We want to look at, um, take oftentimes pride in where we come from. Like, it's not always bad. We look back sometimes at the lineage, like my family, I my father did this and it was amazing and I have now this glorious reputation because of what they did or maybe your ethnicity or your culture or where you live. All these things you look back in pride and, and, and you try to find an identity. And sometimes, quite frankly, we look back and we find despair. We look back in shame and guilt and go, oh, man, that was so horrible. And we again define ourselves by our past. What we did, what others did, God doesn't want your past to define you. He doesn't want your past to define you. Because we always look back with with eyes of flesh, wrongly defining what we think is worthy of celebrating and what we think is worthy of crying about. Hindsight, in this sense, is never 20-20. So if you have to look backward, if you want to look backward, then look 
way backward to the cross. Look past all of your family history, all of your spiritual genealogy to the cross where you received what? A new birth. Where you received a new genesis, a new beginning. If you continue to look back to your own past, you will always struggle to define yourself. You will always struggle to define yourself by your past until you see that faith in Jesus Christ was the end of one genealogy and the beginning of another one. The end of one genealogy and beginning of another one. When you became a child of God, guess what? His genealogy became yours. And you don't need to go any further back than Jesus to know where you come from, to know where your history is, to know what is most important influence in your life. Hope is found in the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hope is not found in the death of of some past you have, some, some broken relationship, some lost job, some terrible decision. No, it is found in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ does not restore your genealogy. He doesn't say, okay, let me just make yours cleaner. He gives you an entirely new one. His family becomes your family, and this causes you to look backward not with pride or despair, but with gratitude and amazement over how God used all of that earthly brokenness, all that spiritual brokenness to bring you exactly to where He wanted you to be. That is the gospel. That's the king that we serve, the kind of power that he has. I'm going to close with a scripture that I pray as you look through Matthew's genealogy causes you to to read it or to hear it differently. It's a verse you've heard before, I'm sure. Romans 8.28. But catch this. Okay, so in the the beauty of God's designed genealogy, this broken genealogy that ends with this glorious hope in Jesus. Check it out. And we know that for those who love God, all things, oh, what do you mean by that? All things! What's that mean in Greek? All things! The good things? Yes! Bad things? Yes! Ugly things? Yes! Bad decisions? Yes! Screwed up parents? Yes! All things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed, to look like Jesus, the image of His Son, in order that what? That He might be the firstborn among many brothers. There's your new genealogy. There's your new family. Never saw that before. Neither did I. You be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, those whom he gave new life, those who he brought into the new life, those he also called, and those he called he justified, and those whom he justified he also glorified. There will be a day when we are freed from this world that is still broken. 
Our bodies and flesh still run down, but there'll be a day when we get to go back home and be with God the Father and enjoy Him forever. And I look forward to that day. Don't let your past define you. If you have to look backwards, look back to the cross.